A tune inter flight is flying to Tunisia, but they do not arrive at their final destination. What caused this flight to ditch instead of land? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. And we're panicking. <laughs> panic, 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 panic. It's the panic. new year for us now. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> and now we're just trying to get caught up. Frantically. Yeah. Things are hopefully going to start settling down a little bit. Our weekend plans are not too busy anymore. And also, it's going to be past the holiday chaos. Oh, thank God. And things will just really your guys' lives are chaos. My yes. life was not the chaos one. <laughs> yes, it was chaos. If you wish to hear more about the chaos, listen to the post episode where Nick discusses passengers. Oh God, I don't even passengers. know if I want to. Nah, uh, I mean, I've told the story too many times at this point. It's so much. Yeah, it's just a lot. It's a lot. It was There's a so lot in things. like two days. I can tell the stories. I remember three of them. Okay, four of them. Three of them. There's four. It's I fine. don't know. I will figure anyway, it out. It's fine. Thank you to all our patrons. We don't have any new patrons. Okay, you had me panicking you. for a second. <laughs> thank you to all our patrons. I feel like we need to do that. There's several of you that already answered the... Ah, yes, the trivia. Trivia. For the month. No one's got it 100% correct yet. It is January 2nd. Yes, January 2nd today. Today. I said it out today. <laughs> yes. Time is irrelevant and has no meaning to me. So. Wait, now I need to know the questions, but I don't want to say them out loud because that defeats the purpose of having a newsletter. So I'm going to look it up. Yeah. Someone mixed up me and Christy's favorite color, which is fine. I think because at one point someone said my favorite color is very favorite color. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then now someone said that my favorite color is her favorite color. <laughs> and then when she comes up, then they'll be like, yes. We got all three. Yep. So. Yep. One of these days, somebody will get it. Also, someone's gotten one instrument correct. And that's Bob. And it's Bob. Thanks, Bob. That's the one I'm looking at right also, now. Also, thank you, Bob, for sending us books. Oh. Thank you so much. Bob, that was cool. Bob sent us personalized, like, Christmas gifts. Yes. And he sent me a cross-stitch book, and I'm already starting on one. Yes. It's fine. Mine is about Tenerife. So. Oh, God. Mine's about the Concorde. Cool. <laughs> airplanes, airplanes, and cross-stitch. Yep. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. If that wasn't a key for you to sign up for the newsletter, sign up for the newsletter. It takes a good portion of my time, and I appreciate yes. when people read it, so please sign up for it. Yes. Uh, yeah. You can always unsubscribe from it if you don't like it. Just email us and say, hey, take me off the list, yeah. and I'll take you off the list. It's not a big deal. Right. Also realize, I am the one who does the newsletter. If yes. there's a typo, it's my fault. <laughs> I have a learning disability. Please, I try to make sure I reread through everything and it makes sense, but sometimes I catch stuff where I'm like, what? It's it is right. evidence that you're human. God forbid. God so forbid. just keep that in mind. <laughs> like, no one, like, double checks my work. I just send it out. So yep, it just keep does. that in mind when you're reading through it. Like, um, this doesn't make sense or, like, this comma shouldn't be here or whatever because uh, dysgraphia. Yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. Check out the merch page. It's the new year. Maybe you should get some new merch. Yeah. Ayo. And if you have anything you want on there that's not on there yet, tell us. Maybe we can do it. Yeah, for sure. There's lots of things we don't have on the website that we definitely could mm -hmm. on our merch store. Yes. I think that's it for like housekeeping stuff. Yeah, I think that's probably it. Okay, so what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Tune Inter Flight 1153. Thank you, too. Thank you, too. <laughs> Thank you to Alan and Scott for recommending this. 
Thanks. Thanks. Alan and Scott. Which Alan? Not the one that's out to make you mad. Okay. Okay. Different Alan. <laughs> Patron Alan. Patron Alan. Got yes. It. This accident occurred on August the 6th of 2005. Almost happy birthday, Miranda. Almost. Almost. <laughs> I feel like you've had more birthday accidents yeah. than either, than any of the like three Like the of one us. I just covered for last week. Yeah. It's my birthday. Yeah. So let's not fly on August 2nd. What is my birthday? Also, yeah. usually I'm working right. <laughs> on my birthday. And busy. So like you and also, like a billion other things to do. You mm-hmm. usually want to hang out with your family because it's also your brother's birthday. Yes. yes usually. So, so those kinds of things. It depends because our schedules now don't really align very much. Yeah, anymore, but if we're but... going to like Fiji or New Zealand, I'm sorry. <laughs> we're going. <laughs> okay. Listen, Linda. I'm not saying that if the occasion arose that we were like we're gonna take a trip and it's gonna be during my birthday i'm gonna be like bob like, <laughs> <Yeah>. i'm going <laughs> this is my birthday i'm going but my, my family would understand we just celebrate when i get back so. yeah but, or before i leave but That's but fair. let's go i don't know on august 1st yeah. On august 2nd? <laughs> yeah. so we can be in the destination by august 2nd yes ideally ideally yeah. yep all right this was an atr 72 200 with the tail number Tango Sierra Dash Lima Bravo Bravo. This being an ATR 72 means it's a high wing twin turboprop. We've talked about them in the past. They are important. They are still very much flying around. There's quite a few of them. We don't see a lot of them in North America, but we do. They do fly a lot. Yes. Brendan flew on one, didn't he? He flew on a 42. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That is pertinent later. Yes, it is. The 72 is the bigger version. Not that Brendan flew on it, but that aircraft is pertinent later. Right. This was a flight from Bari in Italy, in Italia. Italy. Oh my gosh. I had, to do, I had to do a little bit of translation yes. on this one. To Gerba, Zarzis in Tunisia. Mm-hmm. It's a vacation destination. Apparently. It's, it's a beach location. It is on the Mediterranean. Yep. The captain for this flight was Chefik Al Garbi. He was 45 years old. He had 7,182 hours total, of which 5,582 were on the ATR. So the very much vast majority of his hours were on the ATR. The first officer was Ali Kabair Al Aswad. He was 28 years old at the time. He had 2,431 hours total, of which 2,130 were on the ATR. So most of them. (laughs) He only had... 301 hours. Not on the ATR. Not on the ATR. (laughs) You know what? Good for him. He's very experienced on this airplane, which could be very good or very bad. Yeah. (laughs) I wish he was more experienced. Yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean... I mean, he's not inexperienced per se, though. He's within, like, what we would call safe-to-fly commercial aircraft. Yes. Yes. We'll get there. This is called foreshadowing. Right. We got a long way to go before we get there. Don't (laughs) you worry. I got a lot. This report was ridiculous, just to preface before I get into here. Excellent. There was an 18-page history of flight, of which I did not use most of, because they went way too in-depth with too many things that aren't important before just hearing about the accident. This report was over 300 pages. Ew. uh... Uh Uh-huh. So. (laughs) This is me complaining. It is unprofessional, I understand. But listen. So my history of flight is relatively lengthy, but not terrible. The aircraft and crew were on a series of flights over several days, including some charter flights for vacation tour groups. The aircraft had flown five legs the day before, the captain having flown the last four of those and the first officer having flown the last two, ending in Tunis in Tunisia. So that's 
a roundabout summary of the day before, all of the, the whole crew and airplane had flown together at least twice, but all of them had operated the day before. They were doing both scheduled flights and charter flights over the course of these two days. For complicated reasons, the aircraft was due to fly two legs on the morning of August 6th, but it did not. A different aircraft did instead. The flight crew arrived at the airport around 11 a.m. for the next leg, what was supposed to be the third leg for the aircraft for the day, but the first for the crew. And it was a ferry flight to Bari, Italy, Bari, Italy, from Tunis. So, so they're just real. It's really more of a repositioning flight. Right. This is they're part of the. They're going back to their origin to pick up people. Well, not necessarily going to the origin. Actually, they're going to an outstation, what we would call an outstation, so a place away from a, a home base, which Tunis is their home base. So going somewhere else, and. Because this isn't a place that they normally fly, they also don't have any maintenance, anything there. So they're going out there to pick up passengers, but they also have to take somebody else with them. Right. So they were picking up some passengers on a tour to fly them back to Jerba. To Tunisia. To Tunisia, right. It's a different city in Tunisia. Some fuel was added to the aircraft before it departed Tunis. The aircraft was to carry an airline engineer to accompany the aircraft, since they did not have maintenance facilities at Bardi. 11.30 a.m., refueling was completed, so the first officer completed the pre-flight ops, while the dispatcher and the captain completed the necessary documentation for the flight, so there's a flight dispatcher based there in Tunis, and he was literally meeting with them and going over all the documentations needed for the flight, especially since this was a charter, you're doing some things a little outside of the normal. Along with the three already on board, so the Captain, first officer, and the flight or, and the engineer, not a flight engineer. He's just a maintenance engineer okay. for the company. However, the Mayday episode did refer to him as flight engineer. He is not that. Right. He's not that. ATRs don't have flight engineers. They were joined also by two cabin crew for the ferry flight, who would be, of course, the cabin crew for the passengers on the way back. The flight to Bari took off at 12.05 p.m. local time as Tuninter Flight 152 Foxtrot. Weird flight number. It's repositioning. Yep, basically. The flight was one hour and 41 minutes long, landing at Bari at 1.46 p.m. without incident. At Bari, additional fuel was added and 34 passengers boarded the aircraft as the crew prepared to carry out the next flight, all the way back to Jerba. 2.19 p.m., the flight requested permission to start the engines from air traffic control, which was acknowledged and granted. Three minutes later, the flight crew requested permission to taxi, which was granted, and instructions were given to taxi runway 07. 2.25 p.m., the flight was holding short of the runway when they received their air traffic control route clearance, so their departure clearance and clearance in route. 2.30 p.m. and 33 seconds, so about five minutes later, the flight was cleared for takeoff. The captain was to be the pilot flying, while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring for this leg. 2.32 p.m., the flight began its takeoff roll. The takeoff and climb to cruising altitude was normal. The flight had been in touch with several controllers through the climb, continuously asking for higher altitudes until finally reaching their planned cruising altitude to flight level 230 at 23,000 feet. 3.17 p.m. in three seconds, the flight was instructed to fly directly to waypoint Tango Uniform Papa Alpha Lima, Tupal, while maintaining flight level 230. This was to help shorten the route slightly, so instead of doing a few different waypoints, they were told to fly direct to a certain one along their route, shortening their flying distance and time. We like shortcuts. Mm -hmm. About four minutes later, the crew were taken by surprise when the right engine suddenly shuts down. This was 49 minutes and 50 seconds into the flight, while cruising at flight level 230 or 23,000 feet. 3.21 p.m. in 36 seconds, the first officer requested a descent to 17,000 feet from the air traffic controller due to a, quote, 
technical problem, end quote. Yeah, I would say the right <laughs> engine completely not working as a technical problem. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. You yeah. think that's the extent of their issues. Right. Due to other traffic in the area, the Rome Air Control Center or area control center that they are talking to at the time, the controller did not clear the flight down to the requested 17,000 feet, but instead instructed them to descend to 19,000 feet, which the flight crew acknowledged and began their descent. Just 100 seconds after the right engine shut down, the other engine shut down. The left engine suddenly shut down. So now we have a dual engine failure. Woo-hoo. 3.23 p.m. The flight informed the air traffic controller that they wanted to land at Palermo, which is on Sicily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. It's the nearest spot. It is the nearest spot. Now, to put some things in perspective, if, oh, if you that's look at it, it's be hot. It's August. Yes. Ow. Very. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> I mean, last time Nick was there in Sicily, he said he went to bed and it didn't go below like 100 degrees that night. Nope. I was there for 10 days and it didn't get below 100 degrees at all, ever, during all 10 days. Mm. Not at night, not during the day. I'm good. Yep. Also, this is the least of their worries. Right. Sorry. They're over the Tyrrhenian Sea. Just to put some things in perspective, if you need to know where that is, look it up. It's on a map. They're flying between mainland Italy and Sicily, basically. I didn't know it had a name. Mm-hmm. I just called it the Mediterranean. It's part of the Mediterranean, technically, but it is the Tyrrhenian Sea. Okay. It doesn't matter. Let me it's just fine. throw out all my notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Mind you, they're going to Jerba, which, yes, of course, is a, a sun destination, a beach destination. It's also in the Sahara. So. <laughs> oh, so they were going to be hot. They, they were, were going to hot anyway. <laughs> okay, but isn't Sicily like humid and the Sahara's. Uh, yeah, but they're going to be on the beach, which is both. <laughs> I mean, Sicily is 90% sand because of the sand that blows over from the Sahara. So. That's why it's so high. That's part of why it's so high. Y'all, Terranian is not spelled the way you think it is. No, it is not. <laughs> is it like pterodactyl? Or is there a yeah, bunch pretty of pretty much, actually. You're it? not wrong. It's T-Y-R-R-E-H-A-N-I-N-A. It's R-I-A-N. T-Y-R-R-E-H-E-N-I-A-N. Yeah, see, I wasn't too far off. And I Disgusting. Yeah, Terranian, yep. I hate language. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, so they've requested to land at Palermo, which I've been to before, actually. Well, good for you, Nick. Mm-hmm. We'll good go someday. Good for you. Let's not go in August. No. Simultaneously to that, the air traffic controller was giving instructions to the flight to descend to 17,000 feet. Thank you. <laughs> so neither transmission was understood by the opposite party because oh, they were good. both talking, bringing, talking at the same, same time. time. That said, they kind of noticed that. So the flight crew then made a mayday declaration, once again, stating the, the need to land at Palermo. They're like, hey, just so you know, (laughs) you're aware. I need to get on the ground now. Our (laughs) engines aren't working. (laughs) Right. We don't really have an option. Right. The air traffic controller acknowledged, once again, clearing the flight down to 17,000 feet, and then began coordinating with other traffic in the area to allow the flight to head direct to Palermo. So they're trying to move other people out of the way. While all of this is happening, the flight crew is trying to unsuccessfully determine what is causing all of these engine failures with the given information in the cockpit. That just wasn't enough info to tell them what was going on. Also, they don't have a lot of instruments anymore. No, because no power. Very little. The lead cabin crew member then entered the cockpit, at which time the captain requested that the engineer come to the cockpit. One minute later, that engineer had come forward from the last row of the airplane to the cockpit and was positioned between the two flight crew. 
The three of them then began attempting to restart the two engines on the airplane. So the two flight crew and the engineer, they're all working together to try to figure out how to get this thing restarted. Figure out what's going on. Don't they have a checklist for that? Oh, they do. They're, they're running. They're they running are it. running so many checklists at this point in time. But at this point, they run the checklist a couple of times, I think. Yes. And they're it's like, not I'm working. They're like, I really hope the engineer knows like a trick that we don't know. Right. Because, uh, listen, <laughs> so turns <they're>, out. <laughs> they're all trying. They it's not like one of those things where you can like hit it with a hammer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Have it work. Right. It doesn't work the, that way. The, the Jeremy Clarkson way. The Miranda's dad way. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. I can tell that story in the post episode. It's pretty, I think I already have, but it's pretty funny. Yep. 3.24 p.m. in 19 seconds, the flight crew once again declared a mayday over the air traffic control frequency and asked for vectors to Palermo, also stating to the air traffic controller that they had lost both engines for the first time. <laughs> yeah, just like, so no, really. Wait, way to bury the lead. Yes. No, really. We're falling. We're danger. <laughs> yeah. We're danger. We're in danger. Yes. The controller instructed the flight to contact Palermo Air Traffic Control directly for vectoring, who had already been informed by this controller at Rome ACC of the incoming ATR-72 in distress. So they had already talked to them several times and told them what was going on. They were now told to talk to Palermo Approach, who would then vector them. He's like, not to ignore you, but I have no idea. Yeah. Talk to somebody else. <laughs> Fair. 3.25 p.m., the flight contacted Palermo Approach Control and received weather information for the airport, and the air traffic controller then requested confirmation of an emergency condition, to which the flight crew acknowledged and confirmed, in fact, that they had lost two engines. <laughs> in fact, we have no engines, in fact. Are you dealing with an emergency? Yes, sir! In fact, in fact we are! Yes, we are! We are falling out of the sky actively. They're gliding. Calm down. That is just a Currently, fancy term. A fancy term for controlled falling. falling. <laughs> it's falling with, with style. style. <laughs> if you didn't get that reference, mm -hmm. please leave. Don't actually leave. <laughs> don't leave. Come back. Come back. <laughs> we like you. Except that you don't know Toy Story, so I like you a little bit less. <laughs> the flight crew also asked three times about the distance they were from the airport. To the because... Airport. Do you cover why? Well, it's part of their instruments. They can't tell. They don't have distance measuring equipment. Otherwise, no nope. one's DME anymore. It's not working. Uh, so they're no like, idea. The, the engines aren't working. Right. Hey, Palermo, can you tell me uh, how far away you are? <laughs> right. <laughs> Pretty much. That's what they're asking. So they had to ask that three separate times. But the air traffic controller at the airport had a difficult time understanding them because of the broken English and the distance. Their radio at this point is not working at 100%. Reading some of the CVR transcript, they are not native English speakers. No, they are not. And neither is the air traffic controller in Palermo, by the oh, way. Oh, God. Did not help does not this. help factors. Right. Especially once you get into what we call IROPs or regular operations. This would be one of those. You mean emergency <laughs> operations? Yep. The aircraft was roughly 48 nautical miles from the airport at the time which the air traffic controller informed them. All attempts to restart the engine up to this point were unsuccessful, and at this point, things were becoming evidently dire. I would say so. At that time, the flight crew transmitted, quote, Is there any terrain nearest than Palermo, sir, please? We lose both engines, and we are only 15,000 feet. End quote. You can tell the English is... Not great. Yes. It's passable. The flight crew repeated once more asking for any closer airports, but the air traffic controller could not understand this request. To put this in perspective, Miranda, that's Bari. That's Palermo. Do you see what's right here? The ocean. <laughs> they are flying over nothing. They are flying there's, over the sea. There's nothing. Right. Charlie over the ocean. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, ATR over the ocean. <laughs> 
Another aircraft on the frequency then chimed in, acting as a bridge for communications between the ATR and Palermo because they were kind of between the two of them and they could actually hear both ends of this. That request was understood by the air traffic controller and they subsequently informed the flight that Palermo was in fact the closest airport to their location, which was flying over the Tyrrhenian Sea at the time still. So they still had to figure out a way to get there and Palermo is very much on the edge of Sicily. It is on the ocean. It is on the north edge of the island. Yep, it is. The airport... One side of it is a cliff to the water. So, I mean... Where the hell is it? It is, when you're looking at the city, it's actually over here. Oh, no, like, it's surrounded by ocean. Yes, it is. This sounds like it's going to be a ditching. That's, 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 yeah. Well, you might be onto something. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. It's looking like it's going to ditch. Just saying. And just to that point... The captain asked the lead cabin attendant to enter the cockpit again, at which time they discussed preparing the cabin for a water ditching. Yeah. The cabin crew That'd assisted. Be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cabin crew assisted the passengers and requested that they all wear their life vests and fasten their seatbelts. So put them on. Despite what one passenger who was interviewed on Mayday said. It says it in the report, too, actually. Anyways. That will be for later. I'm sure you can guess. The aircraft was at 12,000 feet. And five and a half minutes had passed since the first engine had shut down. So it actually hasn't been very long, and they have lost a lot of altitude. I mean, five minutes is a pretty long time in an emergency. Yes, it is. But when we're talking about gliding from cruising altitude, yeah, it's pretty fast. They've already lost half their altitude. <laughs> it's not good. There's reasons for that. Yep. They were a little under 40 nautical miles from the airport. And all three in the cockpit could not determine what the failure was or what the issues occurring were. They just could not figure it out. They're still trying to restart the engines. Over the next few minutes, the flight crew and the air traffic controller exchanged information regarding radar vectoring for runway 20 at Palermo, the number of passengers on board, the fuel load, and any dangerous goods on board. The flight crew had informed the air traffic controller that there were 35 passengers, which counts the engineer, by the way, because he is considered a passenger, Mm -hmm. not a crew. 35 passengers on board. 1,800 kilograms of fuel and no dangerous goods. These are the things that they would ask in any emergency, by the way. They still ask this as part of an emergency. They try to get that information. Yes, it's probably on a manifest, which are generally digital these days, and you can get that information from the airline, but also it's nice to have. Fuel on board is not on the manifest. In the moment. Well, not necessarily. Yes, you're right. But still, all this information is just good to have as fast as possible in an emergency. Yeah. So the air traffic controller asking them directly. Yeah. One last attempt was made to start the right engine, but it was unsuccessful. 3.33 p.m. and 53 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that they were 20 nautical miles from the airport still. 15 seconds later, the flight crew declared that they would not be able to reach land, as their altitude was only 4,000 feet at the time. 12 minutes had passed since both engines had shut down. The captain then asked the first officer to begin the ditching procedure checklist. So now they are just pretty much making that inevitable. They asked at that time for emergency and search and rescue operations to be dispatched from the air traffic controller, asking, quote, can you send us helicopters or something like that? End quote. They're like, seriously, you're just going to want to send send something. The air traffic controller informed the flight that emergency services had already been notified. They were already heading that way, by the way. Yeah, they were kind of already working that way. Yeah, probably. That's not to say they got there quickly. They did not. It, I think the episode said it was like 26 miles of rough seas yep. or something like that. I will get to how long it took in a few. So the Coast Guard's on the way. Yeah, they're on the way. 90 seconds later, the flight crew informed the air traffic controller that they had seen two boats nearby. So they were going to make a left turn to a heading of 180 degrees to ditch as close to the boats as possible. 
Good, good tactic. They also confirmed that their altitude at the time was 2,200 feet. <laughs> and it is actually normal aircraft. Usually, if they're going to try to ditch somewhere in the water, they're going to try to do it as close as possible to other humans. So if there's a boat, they're going to try to do it as close as possible to a boat. Because your hope is that somebody will both see it, tell people where it is, and hopefully help you. That's the idea, anyway. Right. These boats didn't help. <laughs> According to them, they didn't see any of this happen. Yeah. Anyways. Hmm. One minute. I know. That. I know. One minute later, the flight confirmed again that they would not reach land and that they would ditch near two large boats. Quote, we have two boats on the left hand, big boats. End quote. They had chonkers. Need chonkers. The first officer continued to complete the ditching checklist. The flight crew then asked the air traffic controller to try to inform the boats of the situation, of which they didn't really have any means. But the air traffic controller once again informed them that they had already advised emergency services, as well as the military. The captain then asked the first officer to assist him in steering the aircraft for the ditching and to prepare for impact. The captain also instructed the engineer to get ready for the impact as well. He strapped himself into the jump seat in the cockpit. Yep. The last communication with the air traffic controller ended at 3.37 p.m. All passengers and cabin crew were seated with seatbelts fastened and life jackets on. The captain gently brought the airplane down, pitching up slightly in the last moments. 3.38 p.m. and 5 seconds, 17 minutes after the first engine had shut down, the aircraft ditched in the water. The aircraft immediately broke into three major sections. As it does. The forward fuselage, forward of the wing. The rear fuselage, rear of the wing, including the tail section. And the wing section and the center portion of the fuselage all attached together. People quickly tried to get out of the aircraft and head for safety as much as they possibly could. Some passengers had already inflated their life vests! While others did so while they were finding their way out. Which is what you're supposed to do. Yes. So you don't get trapped in the airplane. Yes. Please reference Ethiopian Airlines, the hijacking. Mm-hmm. The Mayday episode referenced it numerous times. Mm-hmm. Did that happen before or after this? This would have been after. Great. After? Pretty sure this would have been after. Because uh, that was in the yeah, 90s. That was, that was yeah. in 96. Yeah. Right. So this is 2005. This so is nine yeah. years later. The impact was heavy and some passengers and crew had unfortunately not survived the impact. Within 20 to 30 minutes of the impact with the water, the front and rear sections of the aircraft sank. However, the wing and center section of the aircraft continued to float and many survivors clung to it as they waited for rescue. Though airport operations had already been mostly interrupted at Palermo, an aircraft that departed Palermo 20 minutes after the ditching confirmed the location of the wreckage, having seen it while departing. They confirmed this to the air traffic controller, who had already predicted the area that it was based on the last radar location. So they were basically just confirming, yes, that's where the airplane is. That's pretty much it. Which is helpful. The airport then subsequently shut down. They didn't, they stopped everything, basically. Except the helicopters. 46 minutes after ditching, which is a sizable amount of time, was the point at which the first rescuers actually arrived on scene. That's from Sicily. sad. There was... That same guy I was talking about earlier was interviewed on the Mayday episode, and he had been flying with his fiance, who did not live. Mm-hmm. They were going on vacation, and he had his life vest on and inflated. When he woke up, he was underwater with only his pants on. No life vest, no shirt. Huh. And when he got to the surface, he grabbed like a bag or something Mm -hmm. to float with, and his lungs were filling with blood. Mm -hmm. According to the Coast Guard, he was the furthest survivor from the scene. Mm -hmm. 
and they were in the helicopter, so they just dropped him a life vest. Yep. Here's the way you can float for now. Having no idea that he was in a very uh, serious injury condition. Yeah, internal bleeding. Yep. He lived to tell Mm -hmm. the tale. Obviously. (laughs) Yep. He did not make it out of the hospital until after his fiance was buried. Yep. And their story is worse from there, too. I mean, it's just terrible. There's one mom who was interviewed and her daughter had just finished a semester in school and had decided to go on vacation with her fiance. Both of them perished. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's all. Sorry, we don't cover passenger stories a lot, but they yeah. focused on it a lot in yeah. this episode. And there's the whole bit about how the first guy you were talking about, how his wife, they were traveling out of a smaller airport because they didn't. There was because a she, lot of weird touristy terrorist, uh, terrorist things happening. And their original time. plan was to go to Cape Verde out of Milan or Rome, but she thought either airport was prone to terrorist attacks. So she's like, let's go somewhere more chill and out of a chill airport. Thinking it would be less likely for something to happen. Well, there, it wasn't a terrorist attack. Right, no. Uh, it was a malfunction of the plane of some kind. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. I'm very happy Miranda hasn't figured it out. This is not one that she would, though. No, I, I have... seriously, I don't even have a guess. I mean, I know, like, and that's I'm fair. guessing it's not a bird strike because then both engines probably would have been out at the same time and it would have it's been a at a lower alt- altitude. Right. So, like, that's the one thing. It has to be something mechanical that happens. This is why I say y'all be smart about these things. Like, some people just don't. I don't know. Y'all think y'all it's yeah, you know too much. <laughs> I feel like I should at this point. Like if I haven't learned anything, That's we fair. got a problem. That's fair. <laughs> it's been hundred and sixty seven episodes. Yeah. We're on one sixty eight. Yep. I hope I understand a little bit by now. Yep. But we have given you a few really key things that'll come up here in a few. Anyways, to finish this out. In all, fifteen passengers, including the engineer and one crew, the rear cabin crew member, who was also the lead cabin crew, perished in the accident. 13 passengers and all three other crew were seriously injured, while seven passengers only had minor to no injuries at all. Huh. Many of those that had perished were determined to have passed due to the impact, while others could not escape the wreckage due to injuries and likely drown. They did not say it was due to inflated life vests. No, but... Let's be honest. It was probably somewhat due to the inflated life right. vests. Part of why you'll find that on pretty much every aircraft, the type of seatbelt is standardized is actually because of this same situation. Because this is the type of seatbelt that can be released when it's under tension, which a lot of seatbelts can't be released when they're under tension. It's very difficult for them to be released when they're under tension. And why that's a problem is an Ethiopian when they had their life vests inflated, they were a lot of people they ended up pulling. stuck in their seat because there's so much buoyancy. That's a lot of force pulling you up against that seatbelt. And when it's under tension, certain types of seatbelts, they can't release. So people ended up stuck in their seats and drowned in Ethiopia in this situation. In this one, they probably already had the updated seatbelts, though I can't say for sure. And I don't know if that was part of it. What they attributed to was injuries. They said people's injuries from impact were too severe to allow them to escape the sinking wreckage. Which, to that... I just wonder, I mean, I understand not wanting to put yourself into a dangerous situation that you just got out of, but to anybody who wasn't too injured, I wonder how many people they went back and collected before it sank. Right. How many people did they help, you know? Yeah. Were they actively trying to get more people out of there before it, it sank? Okay. Is that all you got? That's it. This investigation was performed by the Agencia Nacionale per la Sicurezza del Volo, or the ANSV, which translates to the National Flight Safety Agency. Yep. Italy? 
What yes. gave it away? Yes. <laughs> Just a guess. guess. Just a guess. guess. Yep. And they had the assistance of the aircraft manufacturer, ATR. They actually have their own set of investigators that helped with this. It does help that they're pretty close by, you know, they're France. In, they're in Toulouse. Yeah. France. Given that the front and back of the aircraft, you know, the parts with the important parts. Yeah. Were under a kilometer and a half of water. Oof. Investigators started with what they had. Survivors. Everyone reported what they kind of already knew off the bat. Both engines died. Yep. Very close in time to each other. But the interviews with the flight crew shed a little bit of light on the situation. They each reported that the fuel gauges reflected still having 900 kilograms in each wing tank and did not receive any low fuel warnings, but they were getting low fuel feed warnings. That means that although there was fuel, it wasn't getting to the engines. So investigators split up and began looking into two different potential causes for that. One was the fuel contaminated. This happened to British Airways Flight 38, which we covered back in episode 91. Having water or ice in the fuel can prevent fuel flow. But that's not the only kind of contaminant either. There can be sediment in the fuel or fungus, either of which would also prevent fuel flow. So investigators drew fuel from the trucks at body that last refueled the aircraft, as well as various hoses and couplings of the trucks and tanks and stuff, all to be tested for contaminants. The other potential cause would be a leak in the fuel system. This is exactly what happened to Air Transat Flight 236 in episode 152, which we covered not that long ago. Mm -hmm. They had a fuel tank leak that also led to fuel starvation, but they were successfully able to make an emergency landing. So the other group of investigators had the wings and the engines, which encompasses basically the whole fuel system, and they combed through it looking for leaks, ruptures, blockages, etc. They went through every single tube, valve, and pump, and guess what? There was a leak. Neither of these was the culprit. God nope. damn it. So it had nothing to do with fuel, period. I wouldn't say that yet. Okay. Well, it has nothing to do with, like, there was no contamination and no fuel leak. That, yes. Correct. You're correct. So the next big clue is actually something that I questioned during the story and have no clue while writing this if a Miranda caught it or not. She did not. I did not. What were the survivors clinging to while waiting to be rescued? I just assumed wreckage. Specifically, they were clinging to the wing section. Which, if they had 1,800 kilograms of fuel in them, would have sunk. They didn't put enough fuel in the airplane. Oh, no. <laughs> no. About Wait, what? It's a little more complicated than that. It is a little more complicated than that. But yes, at the heart of it, that is the, what the issue is. <laughs> About two weeks into the investigation, ATR provided some technical documentation regarding this particular aircraft. The day before the accident, the same captain had flown the same aircraft and had reported that the fuel gauge for one of the tanks did not seem to be working properly. Mayday depicted it as only showing the top half of the numbers. I didn't see any documentation on what exactly was wrong, so we're going to stick with that, even though Mayday's super reliable. So reliable. That was so sarcasm. Reliable. He requested that maintenance replace the part, the part that is known as the Fuel Quantity Indicator, or FQI, as I will further refer to it. Okay. ATR presented this because they knew that Tuninter flew both the ATR-72 and its bigger sibling, the ATR-42, and the FQIs look very similar. The only way to tell them apart is their model number. Well, crap. What would happen if the wrong FQI was installed? And how would we know if it was? Let's look at the maintenance logs, right? It said they installed the right one. Oh, okay. Well, at least we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. Do we? But do we know for sure? I mean, there's been screw-ups before. Well... Let's go look at it. Oh, wait, it's at the bottom of the ocean. Yep. So three weeks after the accident, the remaining wreckage was retrieved from the Turanian. Yep. Sorry, that messes me up. And investigators were literally just standing there waiting to look at this one part of the cockpit. Just this one device, this one instrument. And when they wiped all the sediment off of it, lo and behold, it was the FQI for the ATR-42. 42. 
So investigators ran a fuel consumption test using both models of the FQI to determine what each would read for an ATR-42 fuel tank at different fuel levels. Because the two models of the aircraft are different sizes, the sensors in the fuel tanks would result in different readings on the two FQI models, but investigators had to be sure that this is what caused the accident. Once the tanks were empty, the correct model FQI read zero kilograms, but the ATR-42 model read 1,800 kilograms. Oh, Oh, no. <laughs> we're so we're done, right? Mystery solved? No. You really That's think... probably not the whole thing. You really think one thing caused the accident? It's never just one thing. Nope. Such a simple mistake. There had to be a way to catch it, right? When the flight before the FQI swap landed, they had about 790 kilograms of fuel on board. When they came back, the FQI read 3,050 kilograms, which the captain took note of. If you were him, what would you think? That's weird. That's not the amount we had yesterday when we got off the aircraft. He thought, oh, they already put fuel on. It's a pretty safe assumption, right? Um, I feel like, though... It was overnight. I mean, not weird. I don't know. Do they fuel airplanes overnight like that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They do. But so, would it be documented somewhere? I feel like there yeah, good, be good, somewhere. Good question. Good question. Great <laughs> so, question. So, where's the fuel slip, you might ask? Yeah, I'm like, where is there somewhere that says, hey, we fueled the airplane? Whenever an aircraft is fueled, they leave you with what's basically a receipt. We added this much fuel to your aircraft. Yep. The flight crew couldn't find it. So they asked the dispatcher if it had been submitted to the dispatcher, and he couldn't find it either. But he told the crew, eh, it's fine. I'll give it to you when you get back. It's not fine. Because they didn't fuel the aircraft. It's also against regulations. It is. He's like, it's got to be here somewhere. Obviously, there's more fuel than what you thought yesterday. So, But but, but no, but no. Had they been more diligent in reaching out for the fuel slip, they may have realized they had never actually been fueled and realized there was a gross error in the system. The 3,050 kilograms actually still wasn't enough for them, so they ordered what they thought was a second fueling and left for body. The crew made it to Italy and added fuel there to make it to Gerba. They added to what they thought was 2,700 kilograms total on board. They thought they added up to 2,700, I should clarify. When in reality, they only had 570 kilograms. Oh, no. <laughs> they did not have much fuel. Not enough. When they ran out of fuel, the system reported them still having 1,800 kilograms left. There is a wonderful graph on our website that shows how much fuel was on board versus what the FQI read. It's not vital, but it's kind of interesting to look at, and Miranda's going to pull it up on my phone. So the red line on the graph is what the FQI was saying, and the blue line is actual. Oh, no. It read a lot more than what they had. Yeah. This is why the crew was so confused. I feel like, though, if it was reading some of the higher readings like that, if they would be able to do weight and balance properly. They actually found out that the discrepancies weren't detectable by feel of aircraft, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Like, you know how in your car you can feel when something's wrong? You're like, eh, I don't like that. I'm going to take it in. This wasn't enough. It was not perceptible. I don't know. It just makes... It just... It's, I'm surprised... Maybe it's because there wasn't that many people on the flight. Yes. But like that the center of gravity wasn't off because they didn't have a lot of fuel in the tanks. Well, and you also have to keep in mind that the effect of weight on center of gravity is more pronounced the further it is from center of gravity. Mm -hmm. Because this is in the wings, which is where the center of gravity should be, it doesn't have as much of an effect. Okay. It's a very 35,000 foot explanation of it. It's not entirely correct, but it's basically correct. I'm not going into math equations about it. Also retrieved from the ocean floor were the black box 
faces. Marvelous. Which were able to be read out except for a quarter of a second of the CVR. Okay. Great. I don't. <laughs> the, Who cares? They made a point of it. Whatever. They both confirmed that no low fuel level warnings were received. You know, since it's still read 1,800 kilograms. This is why the crew was so confused. And this is because the data going to the warning system is fed directly from the FQI instead of independent sensors, which would be a great safe feature. Hint. Hint. <clears throat> That's a recommendation. Good. I was really hoping it was. <laughs> it is. The system is supposed to go off when there's less than 160 kilograms per tank, but the system never thought it got that low. So that all makes sense. Right. Here's another step that was skipped that the Mayday episode did not mention. All over the world, there is a standard to compile an operational flight plan, and Tuninter did require this. This document contains the factors that must be considered during flight planning, such as routes, distances, times, fuel, etc. It's also pronounced routes. Don't come for me. <laughs> These values get checked all through the flight, especially times and fuel consumption. Specifically mentioned in the standard operating procedure is that the crew should be observing the quantity of fuel consumed and collating it against the planned consumption quantity. Okay. The flight crew did not compile the operational flight plan or carry out the requisite checks. Had they done so, they would have noticed that the fuel consumption on the flight to a body was shown on the FQI to be 1,500 kilograms, which is 37% more than they planned for. That's not a small amount. But a different indicator on board called the fuel used indicator, ingenious, I know, actually showed 950 kilograms in comparison. The crew failed to notice this discrepancy. I feel like this is one of those things where it's like they've done these hops for a couple of days and they get a little complacent uh -huh. because they've done it so often. You're not wrong. That they're like, eh, it's fine. It should be fine. We've done this multiple times before. Why should it be wrong now? So... That was, I mean, this is just all of what adds to the confusion. You can see why they had three people in the cockpit having literally no clue what was going on. They had low fuel flow, and yet they had a Enough reader, fuel, yeah, and it didn't that, tell that, them that, that they were out of fuel. They yeah. didn't have a low fuel warning. They were so confused. In reviewing the flight crew processes once the engines flamed out, investigators found just that the crew continued attempts to restart the engines. And why wouldn't you? They thought they had fuel. Right. In digging through the CVR, investigators found that the both engines flame out checklist had checks built in that were not performed. Oh, nice. Why? At this point, they only had limited instruments because the generators were um inoperative. Right. Mm -hmm. They did not have DME values to know their distance to Palermo, hence why they had to keep asking Palermo how far they were, and they mm -hmm. were continuously getting interrupted in their processes by air traffic control. Quote, in general, therefore, it may be said that the allocation of priorities to the measures to be taken in the cockpit was, at times, influenced more by the perception of a possibly tragic outcome than by observance of the prescribed procedures, end quote. Okay. Fuel exhaustion was not considered by the crew because the FQI clearly said that they had 1,800 kilograms of fuel. And contamination didn't make sense to them either because they had made it 50 minutes into the flight. Right. Contamination at that point doesn't really make sense either. Any instruments that would help them further diagnose the issue weren't working because, you know, no power. Right. Had they completed the prescribed checklist, they may have actually gotten somewhere, but the situation was a very specific failure and created a lot of stress. Investigators specifically point out that this was an extremely complex situation for the pilots and that all of their attempts at rectifying the situation were fruitless. All the while, they also had to be prepping the cabin for landing. Wow. So... It's a pretty high workload. Basically, we don't blame them for that. We do blame them for not getting the fuel slip. That, that was not good. The captain demonstrated good airmanship, not written in any procedure, when he opted to steer the aircraft towards two vessels on the water for rescue that didn't notice them anyway. Nice. Yep. 
He, tr- he tried. Okay. The FDR stopped recording at 728 feet of altitude and an airspeed of 125 knots. Their descent rate at the time was approximated to be between 700 and 800 feet per minute. Just before the FDR cut out, it recorded a reduction in speed and an increase in the angle of attack. Although impossible to know the exact final pitch of the aircraft, it was estimated to be at 9 degrees. That is a very important, very good number. This is the value at which ditching was determined to be the most successful, and it was actually written in their ditching procedure, I Mm -hmm. found out later, and that the crew was able to achieve this likely increased the survivability of the accident. They technically ditched almost perfectly. Mm Mm-hmm. Your conditions were almost perfect, and actually the aircraft did exactly what it was designed to do in a ditching. But ATR came in with a hot take. Yep. They believed that the whole ditching was unnecessary and that the flight crew should have been able to make it to Palermo. How? Listen. There was no engines, no fuel to get to engines to restart engines, so how? You're correct. I will say, um, this is a little dramatized, I think, based on the report. This part mostly comes from Mayday. ATR conducted a simulation using the simulator in their facilities in Toulouse, using the FDR as a basis for their simulation, specifically the engine failure conditions, altitude, and distance to Palermo. Investigators state in the report that pilot distractions were not a factor in the simulation, and that the simulation was not to evaluate the accident crew, but rather to consider the operational scenario and its difficulties. This could be used to optimize future training. The simulation did not include passenger cabin management, radio dialogue, search for failure causes, engine restart attempts, and they were told not to ditch. Make it to Palermo. That is your goal. Ditching is not an option. That Sometimes it's your only option. I know. Right. You're flying over a bunch of water. Agreed. Two simulations were conducted with two different crews. The first was two captains from an airline that had both ATR-42s and 72s, and they had considerable experience, experience in the ATR-72 as they were both check pilots, and they were the chief pilot and the chief training officer for this airline. So they yep. know what the hell they're doing. Right. The second crew used was an ATR company captain and a captain from Tuninter with considerable experience on the ATR-72, not the accident captain, just to be clear. No, that would be a conflict of interest. That would also be traumatizing? Yeah. Yeah. The first simulation ended in a landing on runway 20 at Palermo. However, the crew reported during their debrief that had it been a real situation without the certainty of being a safe landing, they would have probably opted to ditch. Well, you also have to assume they know what happened to the engines. This crew had no idea what was going on. So they knew that the engines shut down. They didn't know exactly what. And had they had the option, they would have actually rather landed on the water because of the fuel on board. Had they landed on potentially not landed, but landed on ground instead of runway, it was rough terrain. It was a cliff and fuel equals fire. So they're like, we would have rather ditched. We We could land. It wasn't great. Obviously not knowing what we know now. Right. <laughs> but also you have a very good point. Because... I, I feel like I don't like when they do these kind of simulations. They mm-hmm. did it with Sully too, because they well, made and I human will, factors. I will get to yeah. why, because they what they really wanted to know was how would the best crew in the world have changed how the accident crew did. Right. I understand that. But I'm just saying that doing a simulation like this to say that they could have not ditched, sure. But you shouldn't put it against the And they're not them because they, it's they not specifically their fault. said it's not it's not because they're not involving radio, cabin, all of that. They specifically said this is not against the accident crew. This is how could this have been better and how can we train ditchings better? Mm-hmm. Basically, how could this have been possible? And it was proven to be possible. However, there's a second simulation which did end in a ditching one mile from the runway. The following information comes from the Mayday episode, so take it with a grain of salt. It was not in the report. But here are the reasons that one of the ATR test pilots stated that the simulation either made the landing or got much closer than the actual accident. One, the crews feathered the engines. 
you might have noticed that in their instructions they were not to try to restart the engines. The accident crew did not feather the engines because they were continuously attempting to relight the engines, and you need the propellers unfeathered to do so. But this also adds drag and limits their gliding capabilities, which makes sense. Yes. The report did say that they eventually did feather 200 feet above the sea, as stated in the ditching checklist. It is also worth noting per the report that had they gotten all of the way through the dual engine flameout checklist that, quote, if neither engine starts, feather both engines, then shut off fuel. Switch engine start rotary selector to off. Shut off fuel pumps. Apply either the forced landing procedure or ditching, end quote. That's straight from the quick re... the... what's the QRH? Yeah, quick reference handbook. The quick reference handbook. It's in attachment B of the report if you want to go look at it. The crew's second reason that they made it was that the crews slowed down the aircraft. Each aircraft has an optimal airspeed for gliding where the ratio between lift and the air causing drag is the highest. Had the accident crew slowed down by about 55 miles per hour, they would have reached their optimal ditching gliding speed. Right. This is best rate of glide. Whether or not they were trained to do that, I don't know and I didn't see it mentioned anywhere. Okay. But just know that each aircraft has an optimal speed for gliding. I mean, speeds on the aircraft are one of those things you just kind of learn anyways for every aircraft you're type rated on. And you should know most of these. And if you don't, then it's usually posted in the checklist. Yeah. On the list. I didn't see it on the checklist. Or it's posted somewhere on the panel. In any case, had they done those two things, they would have gotten much closer. They had added a lot of unnecessary drag. Not that they really knew that. Right. But that's why they didn't make it even though right. they potentially could have. So you're correct when you said, you know, like, it's it's kind of silly to have done the, the simulation because they didn't know all the information. What they were trying to do in restarting the airplane, restarting the engines, meant that they were actually causing drag, plus they were carrying more speed right. than necessary. So there was just no way. I mean, they wouldn't... Again, the simulator wasn't right, to right. fault the accident crew. Right. It was... It was just to prove if it was possible. Prove it was possible and figure out what tactics make it possible. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I garnered from the report anyway. Yeah. Now for the other part. Right. Investigators examined the operations in the passenger cabin throughout the accident flight. The pre-start safety briefing was given in Italian, which makes sense since the passengers boarded in Italy. Yes. And they most, if not all, were going on vacation. So you can pretty much surmise that they're Italian. Yep. At 12,000 feet during the descent, the senior flight attendant was ordered to prepare for a ditching. And this information was given to the other flight attendant who became distressed and looked continuously out the windows to comprehend the engine problem. This, in turn, caused passengers to panic and become distressed and notice that neither engines were working. Yeah, probably don't panic. Not a great idea. Nope. Not good when you're a... Flight attendant? Yeah. People look at flight attendants to see if they should freak out by the way. Uh-huh. And this one was screaming. And if, if you're freaking out, they're going to freak out. Passengers were instructed to prepare for landing in Palermo and to wear their life jackets as a precaution, but some of them had already done that after seeing the flight attendant freak out. This was all of 10 minutes before ditching. Passengers continued to ask for an explanation, but were not told what was happening. The senior flight attendant helped passengers put on life jackets, but the other flight attendant was in too much distress and did not assist in this task. She had already taken her seat in the jump seat in the front of the aircraft, and she did that as passengers were not seated or preparing for the ditching. She's like freaking out so prematurely yes. right now because and clearly does not have enough training to realize that just because the two engines are out does not mean that the captain does not have control of the airplane. Right. And like 
you need to be okay with the fact that you could potentially die. Like, I mean, that your is job. your job. It's your job. And you go through training camp, which makes me feel like she did not go through training camp. <laughs> I'll get to it. <laughs> the senior flight attendant used a megaphone from the rear of the cabin to inform passengers how to put on their life jackets, informed them to remove their shoes, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. I've heard that before, too. Yeah. And I wrote this in caps. Do not inflate your life jacket. Because you shouldn't inflate your life jacket. He continued these instructions until basically he died. Mm -hmm. Investigators found that at impact, all passengers were wearing their life jackets and all of them were buckled into their seats. Thank God. Now, for that one passenger that was interviewed, he said he unbuckled his seatbelt. Evidence does not point to that. But he said that he did that so he wouldn't get trapped in the aircraft. Right. Don't do that. No, because you could fly out of your seat and get hurt. Hence, he was the furthest from the wreckage. Yeah. And again, he said that he inflated his life vest to provide cushioning at impact. No. I, okay, so we talked about this with the Ethiopian crash, and I kind of understand, if you don't understand the physics on why that's a bad thing, why you would think inflating it would help you survive. Now, if you're going to have a ground landing, I mean, that's not a terrible idea. But you shouldn't even have your life jacket out on a ground landing. But like, I understand the thought process, but really the life jacket is there to help you float when you get outside the aircraft, not for you to yeah, like be okay on impact right. inside the aircraft. No. Yeah. Like if life jackets are the same on boats as they are on airplanes, but you have to get out first. Right. Yep. But well, she's very lucky he even was able to get out. The Mayday episode depicted him as inflating his fiance's life vest, and you may recall that she did not survive. Yes. I don't know how much truth there is to that, and I'm not going to even try to speculate. When interviewed, the flight attendant declared that she performed passenger assistance operations and paid particular attention to children and those in need of additional help. There weren't very many people on this airplane to begin with, so... I mean, sure, 34 passengers, that sounds like a chunk... But that's about half of what this airplane can carry. It's less, actually, than half of what this but airplane can carry. But also, she's like, I, yeah, I did my job, and everyone else is like, you were freaking out in a corner. Right. Yeah, you were You scared. were screaming all the way up until you were, you were in the water. screaming <laughs> and in your seat instead of helping passengers. She reported never facing an emergency before, but had been trained per airline procedures. But investigators found deficiencies in her behavior based on passenger interviews and that she only contributed to unnecessary panic and uncertainty among passengers. Yeah, it, it makes me be like, um, I'm pretty sure you've never, like, it seems like it's fine. Most- Maybe um, you did go through training, but you didn't retain any of it. It's right. one of those things where most flight attendants don't go through a tragic accident like this, right? Like, it just doesn't happen. Ideally. Yeah. Usually, I mean, I mean it depends on where you are in the world. It depends on what airline you're on. It depends on the route. It depends on the weather. It depends on a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. But the whole, like, if you've ever seen videos of what they put, like, cabin crews through. Mm-hmm. And flight like, crews. Well, and flight yeah. crews. But, I mean, like, cabin crew especially, like, they get dunked underwater and they have to get out and they have, like, a certain amount of time. Like, it's a whole thing. Oh, yeah. And they, they have to do, and I don't know their specific for that airline, what they do. Right. can only speak to what we do here in the United States, but... Do we know any flight attendants that could come be interviewed? <laughs> Not that I know of. Chaz? There's the, the lady, the Kaiser lady's daughter. <laughs> I meet people all the time that are like, my cousin's a flight attendant, my sister's a flight attendant. I actually my have a friend from buddy. high school who's a current flight attendant for I ride United. buses with them all day, every day. There's also Chaz. There is Chaz. <laughs> Maybe I'll message him. Anyway, I just, I feel like if she was really trained... She wouldn't have freaked the f- 
out. Really, I just want to know what kind of training flight attendants go through. I mean, of course, you see those like a day in the life of flight attendant videos, but I mean, how much do you really The training, though, is pretty extensive. It really is. It's weeks, usually. I know. I just Um, want to learn more about it. Sorry. And it's so having been to a facility where they train flight attendants, it's pretty crazy. I mean, literally some of the better facilities, they'll have like full aircraft fuselages that they can put in like a 45 degree tilt fill with smoke and then force them to evacuate. And they can evacuate either into water or, you know, out onto a slide, things like that. Like they have like if it's at a 45 crazy simulator. I would just slide out the back of the aircraft. Well, it's at 45, <laughs> like to the side. Oh, I was going to be like 45 degree pitch. Okay, bye. No, to the side. <laughs> Everyone fall out the back of the airplane. No, it's pretty crazy what they do, though. And I mean, of course, they teach you how to do the slides. They teach you to do everything in water. They teach you to do with fire, which actually there's a video floating around from the last 24 hours or so of on a Lufthansa 747. There was a laptop battery fire in an overhead bin. Oh, nice. And the video is of the flight attendant opening the bin and then just spraying the fire extinguisher, the fire extinguisher in there. And of course, it like all comes back out of the thing into her face. (laughs) What you think was gonna, maybe duck <laughs> she kind of did and then she walked away but i mean it, yeah i think it everything was fine in the that's end. one way to powder out. your face right <laughs> anyways probably with carcinogens probably yeah i mean stuff that's supposed to suffocate a fire is probably not great to have on your face or yeah. inhaled right just a thought anyway well, you don't do it regularly <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> anyways all right so we're going to take a brick break, and we're going to come back with the normal Mostly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. There's no findings in this one. They had this weird section. Called conclusions. Called conclusions, which normally in a lot of reports might be the findings. It's like seven pages. not what this is. No, it was seven pages of paragraphs and paragraphs of stuff. It wasn't bullet points like findings are. It was like, here's a synopsis of the entire thing. Again, for like the eighth time. I hate when because there was a synopsis and then do that right there was a synopsis at the beginning of the report plus an 18 page history of flight which was basically a synopsis of everything that happened and what they found out and then there's the analysis which is pretty much a synopsis of everything that happened and what they found out and then there's the conclusions which is pretty much a synopsis of everything that happened and what they found out (laughs) (laughs) so let's get into the massive probable cause which is pretty much a synopsis of everything that happened and what they found out I'm going to read this whole thing verbatim. I am so sorry. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this. Grab a snack. Grab a snack. The cause and contributing factors. The accident under examination, as most aviation accidents, has been determined by a series of events linked one another. This is proper English. Mm-hmm. Which caused the final ditching. The ditching was primar- primarily... Wow. Oh, not <laughs> off to a good start there. The ditching was primarily, is what I think you're trying to say, due to both engines flame out because of fuel exhaustion. The incorrect replacement of the fuel quantity indicator, or FQI, was one of the contributing factors which led irremediably to the accident. 
The accident's cause is therefore traceably first to the incorrect procedure used for replacing the FQI by means of the operator's maintenance personnel. This shall be considered the disruptive element which caused the final ditching of the aircraft due to the lack of fuel that causes the shutdown of both engines. They're so formal about this. As said before, the... As said before, you don't need to say, sorry. <laughs> They're really filling this in. They're like, it was really this. This is what happened. And this is why it happened. This is like this is when happened. you try to write an essay yeah. in high school or college. You're just filling it you're in. you're filling it in with fluff, you know? <laughs> I just need to know what the main cause was. Okay, but really, if you skipped down to this section, this would be a great summary. You don't need to read the whole thing. Sure, yep. Anyway. Agreed. As said before, the accident was determined by a series of events or contributing factors linked one another. Great. <laughs> That's English. Hereafter are listed some considered of major importance. Oh, God. Yep. I said I would read it verbatim. I didn't say it would be good. We're still reading this. Errors committed by ground mechanics when searching for and correctly identifying the fuel indicator. Errors committed by the flight crew. Non-respect of various operational procedures. Inadequate checks by the competent office of the operator that flight crew were respecting operational procedures. Inaccuracy of the information entered in the aircraft management and spares information system and the absence of an effective control of the system itself. Inadequate training for aircraft management and spares information system use and absence of a responsible person appointed for managing the system itself. Maintenance and organization standards of the operator unsatisfactory for inadequate aircraft management. This is halfway through the probable cause. Lack of inadequate quality assurance system. Inadequate surveillance of the operator by the competent Tunisian authority. Installation characteristics of fuel quantity indicators for ATR-42 and 72, which made it possible to install an ATR-42 type FQI and an ATR-72 and vice versa. The analysis of various factors that contributed to the event have been carried out according to the so-called reasons organizational accident model. Active failures, which had triggered the accident, are those committed both by ground mechanics slash technicians the day before the event, while searching for and replacing the fuel quantity indicator, and by the crew who did not verify and fully and accurately complete the aircraft's documentation through which it would have been possible to perceive an anomalous situation regarding the quantity of fuel on board. Latent failures, however, remain concealed, latent in the operator's organizational system until some active errors by mechanics and pilots were made, overcoming the system's defense barriers causing the accident. Analyzing latent and active failures or errors traceable to various parties involved in the event in several respects, it clearly emerges that they were operating in a potentially deceptive organizational system. When latent failures remain within a system without being identified and eliminated, the possibility of mutual interaction increases, making the system susceptible for active failures or not allowing the system to prevent them in case of errors. Active failures were inserted in a context characterized by organizational and maintenance deficiencies. The error that led to this accident was committed by mechanics who searched for and replaced the FQI, but this error occurred in an organizational setting in which, if everybody were operating correctly, probably the accident would not have occurred. Inaccuracy of information entered in the aircraft management and spares information system, particularly regarding the interchangeability of items and the absence of an effective control of the system itself, has been considered, in fact, one of the latent failures that contributed to the event. The maintenance and organization standards of the operator at the time of event were not considered satisfactory for an adequate management of the aircraft. The flight crew and maintenance technicians or mechanics involved in the event, when they made incorrect choices and took actions not complying with standard procedures, did not receive sufficient effective aid from the system in order to avoid the error. End of probable cause. Jesus. I feel like that was unnecessarily long. Yes. I need a drink. Very wordy. Yes. So, a lot of what they are trying to say there is that 
as a company, there were some ways that they failed their employees in preventing these errors from happening. And then an error happened, and then another error happened. Which uncovered this error. Right. And another thing to me that's just like, this is, this just, we'll talk about this here in a little bit, but some charges were pressed. Yep. I know. And why I also think that's just not great. I mean, there's, of course, there's plenty of reasons why that's not a good thing. But also, this is a series of events that's just led to the accident that it's not any one thing. Sure, the incorrect fuel indicator was installed, and that was the main thing. But the aircraft was also supposed to have flown two legs over land that morning, which would have been two extra flights to find out that the fuel indicator didn't work and probably would have ended safer. There was more chances to catch it. That just didn't happen. (laughs) And then it led to this. Like, it's just one of those things where it's like, it's just, this was just a perfect storm in reality. So anyways, let's do some recommendations. Yay! And then I'll read the criminal conviction section of the Wikipedia page. Yes. So they had a lot of recommendations. I'm not doing all of them, but I will read what I feel are the important ones. They recommend that in expectation of the eventual installation modifications of the FQI, fuel quantity indicator, consider the possibility of A, requiring to operators whose fleet includes ATR-42 and ATR-72 aircraft to implement ad hoc maintenance procedures in order to avoid the installation of ATR-42 type FQIs on ATR-72 aircraft and vice versa. And B, requiring the creation of labels to be applied on the FQIs in order to show which aircraft type they must be installed on, ATR-42 or ATR-72. This was ultimately unnecessary. We'll talk about why in a minute, because there's another recommendation that superseded this. We'll talk about that here in a few, though. That kind of comes up at the end. So, big part of this was just, they're trying to say, in the moment, we need to figure out a way to solve the problem of possibly installing the wrong fuel quantity indicator on the wrong aircraft. Which could be stickers, which could be coming up with new procedures, blah, blah, blah. All that to say, they didn't do that, and we'll talk about why in a minute. They recommend considering the possibility of integrating information available in emergency procedures concerning the ditching in order to consider also the possibility of ditching without both engines operating. They had the ditching checklist, but again, we kind of went over how that didn't really necessarily cover the fact that they didn't have either engine. So that was a whole thing. They recommend considering the possibility of carrying out studies aimed to define guidelines and or issue regulatory requirements concerning part number assignment methods for aviation components. What they're actually getting at there was actually really curious, and I kind of liked what they were pointing at because of the fact that, and we didn't talk specifically about how this part number got so confused per se, but the part numbers were relatively similar in their system, especially after they had removed a dash. One was model number 2500, the other was model number 2250. Yeah, and in their system, there was these other part numbers, and it's it's all really complicated. But the reason that that was a problem is because there's no standardization for how part numbers are created in aviation, period. (laughs) An aircraft comes up with their own part number system, and that's what they go off of, and there's no standardization for how that's created and why that's created, and so it's very easy to create a very confusing part number list. So that's kind of what they're getting at, is they're trying to say, like, why don't we standardize part numbers in aviation? And to be honest, I can't say that necessarily that's happened, but maybe we've come up with a better way of doing this anyways. They recommend to consider the possibility of carrying out studies aimed to define guidelines and or issue regulatory requirements concerning the possibility of providing suitable installation modifications on the aircraft or on the component itself in order to avoid the components with same functions and ostensibly similar but with different performance could be installed in air. 
this is the important one. This was the big thing they took away from this. And this is what ATR did. Because the fuel tanks are different, because the fuel quantity indicators read differently, they should also be designed differently. differently. Yeah. So they can't be installed on So they can't be mistaken. The right. So you could try, but it would be idiot-proofed, basically, to where you push the indicator into the slot on the panel, and it doesn't actually fit. So that's basically what ATR did. They made... Even though they look the same on the surface, the connections now are totally different from the ATR-42 to the ATR-72, so that you cannot install the wrong indicator on the wrong airplane. That fixes the whole thing of having, like, stickering and coming up with your own procedure. Yeah. That's just unnecessary when you make it so that it just doesn't fit. Just making it, like, basically <laughs> two puzzle pieces. It's right. only going to fit in one spot. Right. And ATR did that, and that was... Big. That was really big. They recommended this actually as part of also like Airbus should do the same thing for the 319, 320, 321 because they are obviously different aircraft and if they have a similar situation, they should be different. They recommend considering the possibility that all air transport operators perform a systematic check of the correspondence between part numbers shown in the applicable IPC with information contained slash recorded in software slash databases generally used for spares management with particular reference to components which directly influence the aircraft's operation and safety. Check your part numbers, make sure they're in the right place, make sure they're the right thing, make sure they actually do what they're supposed to do, especially in a spares situation. Do your job. Yep. Skipping a bunch, I'm going to read this one. They recommend... As applicable for relevant addressees of this safety recommendation, to adopt necessary legislative initiatives to modify the Italian code in order to make it consistent with provisions 5.12 and 5.12.1 in Annex 13 of the International Civil Aviation Convention, Annex 13 of the ICAO. In particular, such initiatives should aim to establish the principle that recordings contained in the cabin voice recorder, or CVR, recordings concerning communications between aircraft and between aircraft and ETC, as well as, that's really what it says, as well as recordings of telephone calls between ATC centers can be used in judicial proceedings limited to the parts that assume particular relevance for reconstructing the event. No. So While other parts not relevant for event analysis shall not be made available, remaining permanently confidential. So are they saying that they should or should not? Should. They are saying that they should be available in terms of the... Judicial. in For judicial use. In terms of, they say, assume particular relevance of reconstructing... The event. While other parts not relevant for the event analysis shall not be made public, pub available, and be permanently confidential. But it says... Isn't that very gray? Yes, but it also says to comply with the ICAO, so it makes me wonder what the ICAO regulation exactly says. Right. NX 13. I'm not going to go read that. Yep. So, I thought that one was really interesting. I skipped over a bunch of other ones that were kind of in a similar light, but this one I thought was particularly interesting because it's like, how do we use this in a court of law? And the reason that that came up is because... They brought it to a court of law. Yep. In March of 2009, an Italian court sentenced the pilot, Chafik Garbi, to 10 years in prison for manslaughter. Prosecutors said that after the plane's engine stopped functioning, Garbi succumbed to panic, started praying, and failed to follow emergency procedures, and that he could possibly have reached runway 25 at Palermo, or even the standard runway 20. Six others, including the co-pilot, as well as the chief operating officer of Tuninter Airlines, were sentenced between 8 and 10 years. As of 2009, they had not started serving time pending the appeals process. The International Federation of Airline Pilots Associations protested the flight crew's criminal sentences, calling the investigation investigation injustice and the sentence is flawed. Yeah. The criminal investigation subsequent sentencing caused considerable controversy in Tunisia and to a lesser extent in the civil aviation world. 
the official investigation was accused of being one-sided and of ignoring mistakes made by Italian air traffic controllers. Unedited cockpit recordings leaked to the public demonstrated the Palermo air traffic controller as having a poor grasp of English, failing to assign the distress flight to its own radio frequency on which to communicate, and giving the pilots incomplete and or useless information about their position. These cockpit recordings were omitted from the official investigation report. In April of 2012, the Court of Palermo, Italy, reduced the sentences of seven of the Tunisian airline personnel charged. Following their second appeal to the court, Captain Garby received six years and eight months, and the others received reduced sentences between five and a half to six years. I still think they shouldn't have been charged at all, because again, this was an accident. This was a mistake they didn't want. And it wasn't even their mistake. It was the mechanic's mistake. Right. And they tried to make it to an airport as best as they could, but they were also trying to get the airplane started again with the best information they had, which was that there was fuel on board. Yeah. So you really can't blame them. Following the crash, Italy banned Tuninter from flying in Italian airspace. Mm-hmm. Which I think is ridiculous, too. I mean, I understand they wanted to be precautious. Oh. This is kind of an Italian thing. By 2007, Tuninter had rebranded as Seven Air and resumed flights between the two countries. The airline changed its name again to Tunis Air Express in 2011. Right. Tunis Air is the airline that still exists. Absolutely. Okay, but... Oh. The headline was banned from Italy. It's the airline, not the crew. Right, crew. right, right. I had Googled the captain's name, which is why I was like, what? So, yeah, that was a whole thing. They also pressed charges against the maintenance personnel who replaced the thing. Which, did they know? Yeah, I I would say... And also that person's in Tunisia, so... I would say that... It was Tunisian courts that Mm -hmm. I probably extradited him. Probably. I would say that I think the biggest issue was that the ATR as a company Mm -hmm. did not make a big enough difference between the two indicators agreed and atr was not involved in the criminal proceeding as far as i can tell and yet they tried to press charges against people because people want people to blame that's what happens because really if you look at the base cause it was because the mechanic got confused because the indicators looked so much like each other that he put the wrong indicator on the wrong airplane but what an italian thing to do to find blame based on emotion i'm sorry (laughs) but i can say that because you know he's italian yeah so that's the truth, though, that Italians are really quick to place blame based on emotion. Emotional people. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but it's not. It's not their fault. They can't be held responsible for anything. They tried their best. They didn't intend to kill anyone. He even did a perfect ditching per the aircraft manufacturer, per his training, the captain. So I'm sorry. You cannot tell me. You cannot prove to me in any way whatsoever that he was being negligent, or trying to cause an accident. That is not what happened. All of that to say, there's also two other recommendations that had been previously brought up. They had actually been brought up after the accident, but before the report came out. Okay. So they were part of the accident happening. They recommend that to the European Aviation Safety Agency that they should require an ATR-72 and ATR-42 fleet inspection in order to verify the installation of the applicable fuel quantity indicator. So check all of the ATRs. Yeah. Around the world. Make sure that they have the proper indicator on their airplane. Right. Make sure they have the right thing. They also recommend that they should consider the possibility to mandate a modification of the fuel quantity indicator installation in order to prevent any incorrect fitting. So that's the whole thing about the puzzle piece thing. I just found a picture of the two FQIs compared against each other. Yes. We're going to take a look at this. I mean, they're like exactly the same. They are the same. You you ready to see the difference? They're exactly the same. 2,500, 2,250. And and unless you absolutely know that that that... There would be no way. They wouldn't. And then the last recommendation they also had 
that also came up. They recommend to the EASA that they should consider the possibility to change the fuel system certification regulation for public transport aircraft in order to require that the fuel low level warning be independent from the fuel gauge system. Yes. So when the airplane's actually running out of fuel, you get an indication that tells you it's running out of fuel, and that is independent from the fuel quantity indicated. And that does happen. Yes, and some aircraft for sure. Many aircraft for sure. It's it's a sensor that literally just tells you, hey, the tank literally is... Yo, yo. <laughs> There's nothing there. There's nothing there. We're sipping air. It's like when your car has a little light that goes off, and you're like, I'm running on fumes. I can get yeah. there. Just wait. Yep. I got it. I got it. <laughs> That's the whole of it. Did I you found, have I else? found a blog that says today the ATR-42 indicator has a different shape than the 72 indicator and does not fit into the instrument panel slot. Mm-hmm. The ANSV also recommended blah, 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 all stuff we already covered. Yes. they. There's newer versions of both ATRs as well. There's the ATR-42-600 and the ATR-72-600, which are much newer versions, much nicer versions. They have different fuel tanks. They have different engines. They have different everything. They look basically identical. Right. If you didn't know any different, but they're basically upgraded versions with a lot newer stuff. I'm also just kind of annoyed that they prosecuted him for panicking and praying. God forbid when the you man be a little bit yeah, human. When you don't know what's going to happen. Also, that yeah. emergency lasted how long? 17 minutes. I think you're allowed to take a moment. Yes. And also, again, he pulled off what would be a quote unquote flawless ditching for the aircraft. I mean, he did. He saved people's lives. Ultimately, it could have been worse. It could have been a lot worse. They could have all died. It just makes me mad. They could have crashed into something. Right. Stupid Italian government. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think Italians would agree with you. (laughs) They're also, at this point, out of prison, I would hope. I would hope so. Because it was a, what what did I say? How long was the sentence? Not that long. Six years. Yeah, something like that. Five just Depends years. on when they started that sentence, though. That's true. He was sentenced to six years and eight months in April of 2012, so he would be out by now. Yeah, he'd be out by now, but that sucks. But Because you, you know that also means that he can never fly again. Pretty much. Not commercially, anyway. Not Which in Italy. It's stupid, because it's not his fault. Right. So dumb. There's a lot of things wrong with that. I mean, it just this is why the ICEO and the IATA both have whole annexes devoted to this and saying, like, just don't prosecute them. It's just not. it's not the right thing to do. It's morally and ethically actually wrong, even though you feel the need to blame somebody. Yeah. I always want someone to blame. Right. Blame Why don't we just fix the problem? So it doesn't happen (laughs) again. Yeah. Don't let your emotions get the better of you. Okay. Well, that was, I don't remember the airline name. Tune inter. Tune inter flight. I don't remember the flight number. (laughs) 1153. There we go. Thanks for listening. Remember to check out the Patreon stuff if you are so inclined. Also remember if you're a patron and you're like, I need this money. <laughs> yeah. I can't spend it on you anymore. We yeah, get that. That's okay. You also don't have to tell us. You can just delete it. Totally it's get fine. that. We get it. Totally get that. We've had plenty of people do it for one thing or another. So if you don't think you're getting everything out of your membership, however, please let us know so we can like fix that. Yeah. So that other people, when they join, don't have that problem. Right. No one has complained as far as I'm aware about that, but... But we don't want you to. <laughs> yeah, like, we don't want you to. We would so. rather you say something. We're trying to do the best we can. Right. So, make sure you check out the merch page. Also, 
You can look at, if you want ducks, ducks are definitely still available. Two of you got ducks sent back to us, and because of how... They returned it. They returned it. I can't tell who it is. So if you ordered ducks... And didn't get them. And didn't get them. Please let us know. One of them came back in September, which means you ordered them a while ago. And one of them came back recently... So it was one of the ones we just sent out. So if you signed up for ducks, I would say from November back and you haven't gotten ducks, please let us know. We need to update your address so we can send them to you. Right. Something is up. So anyway. Anyway. Anyway, we hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.